Today's reading comes from Luke 2, starting from verse 41. Every year his parents travelled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the travelling party, uh, they they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and with people. This is the word of the Lord. This is the only part of scripture that teaches us about Jesus' life as a child apart from his birth. Uh, And so this is the only glimpse we have of what he was like as um, as as a young person. And Luke has chosen very specifically uh, to include this in his gospel account. And and so this is a very important piece of text for us to wrestle with. This is is the only place we can actually find out about um, Jesus' early life. And this piece of scripture has confused me since I was young. Now, two things in particular bugged me. Firstly, how is it that Jesus' parents could forget him? I mean, if you read, if you've been traveling with us in our, in our Garden to Garden City uh, series, we've been seeing how all throughout the Old Testament there has been this waiting for a Messiah to come, for the one to come who will fix the problem of sin. And uh, God's people understood this. We know that Mary and, and Joseph were devout believers and that they trusted in God. And so how could they lose their child when they knew that Jesus was the special child, that he was the one that would come and bring the consolation of Israel to an end, that he would be the one who would come and ultimately answer this this riddle that's been going on for a few thousand years of how was God going to fix the world. And yet here they were at the Passover feast. They had finished the Passover. They were leaving for home and they uh, somehow lose Jesus. How could that happen? That's the first thing that bugs me. The second thing that bugged me more, I think, as a younger person is how much freedom Jesus had uh, from his parents at the time. 
Now, I mean, his parents trusted him so much that they didn't even check on him before they went to home from Jerusalem. And their actions show us that they really must have trusted in him a lot and that they just assumed that he would be where they thought he had to be and that, um, that as a child of 12, he had this kind of autonomy. Big city Jerusalem, he could simply go where he wanted. And so this leaves us with the question, how do you explain that? How, how do you uh, come to grips with that? Did Jesus' parents neglect him? That, or was he simply left to his own devices? Did they lose him? What was happening there? Now for us to make sense of this text, we have to understand it in the culture that it was happening in. And we know quite a bit actually about the Jewish culture at the time. So what is it that we need to know? First off, we need to know that this was the Passover. This was the festival that, that celebrated God rescuing Israel out of Egypt in slavery all those years ago, uh, all those years ago. And it literally celebrates God's angel of death passing over the houses of the Israelites, the houses where a lamb had been slain to, to kind of cover for the sin of the household so that their firstborn wouldn't die like the Egyptians' firstborns did as a result of the plagues. And so we need to keep that in mind. We also need to keep in mind uh, that the Israelites were required by Jewish law, at least the male, the, the men of the family, were required by Jewish law to attend three festivals in Jerusalem each year. Passover, the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Tabernacles. Now, Last week we saw um, how devoted Mary and Joseph were in keeping the law. And the very fact that both Mary and Joseph and their children are here in Jerusalem shows us just how devout they were in trying to keep God's law. And so it's not that unusual uh, for, for, um, for the people at the time to kind of leave their children. They knew Jerusalem very well. They came for the festival each year. And so they, including Jesus, knew the city pretty well. It's like when you, uh, when you go on holidays to the same place every year. After a while, you know where the best coffee shops are and which ones to avoid. Uh, and so you'll probably be fairly happy to let your child walk around by themselves if you know the place quite well. Uh, we also know that Mary and Joseph and Jesus would have traveled in, in a big company of others who were also attending the Passover at the time. But what we might not realize is that uh, what Luke makes very clear is Jesus' age at the time. And that is that he was 12. Now, in Jewish culture, a child is considered to be an adult, a responsible member of the religious community at the age of 13. And so Luke here makes it clear that Jesus was on the cusp of his adulthood, at least culturally. And that explains a bit this weird situation where the parents could have lost him for a whole day. And I think, Jeanette, you've got it exactly right. Uh, what I think most likely happened is that as the people are leaving from home, the women and children go first, and I think that is because children take a long time to walk. Uh, and so the men and the older boys would follow afterwards, and then in the evening they would come back together, the community would join up, and they would travel on. And now... You can see how easy it would be for Jesus, a bigger boy, but not quite an adult, to be lost. His mother probably thought, well, he must be work walking with the older children. He's just about to get to that age, so that's fine. 
And his dad thinks, well, his mother must have him. Uh, he's really just a boy still. And thus we get the situation that that night, when the group comes together, she says, uh, Joseph, dear, where is Jesus? Uh, I thought he was with you. Well, I thought you said you would take him. Uh, no, uh, I thought he was with you. And so, well, where is he? They don't find him amongst the relatives. And so, after a day's journey, they turn back to Jerusalem to find him. The reason that it's three days later is it's a day travel out. They can't find him, a day traveling back and a day searching. And so they find him on the third day. Now, that's all really interesting. But I think we need to grapple with uh, the fact of just the extreme ordinariness of Jesus' life, his family uh, at the time. His parents were just normal parents. Jesus was a real human child. Yes, he was king of the universe, but at this stage he was a 12-year-old boy. And this is important for us because we have to understand that Jesus had to be a fully human boy, a boy who would grow up, who could get lost in a city, uh, could be like a child who gets lost in a shopping center or at the Melbourne show. Uh, it's important for Jesus to have been a child so that he also could live for children and could die for children. He had to go through infancy so that he could save infants. He had to go through the teen years so that he could be the Lord of teenagers. At every stage, Jesus had to live so that he could die for that, those people. Otherwise, we would not have a Savior who was acquainted with all the temptations and sufferings that we have. And really, in a very real sense, Jesus had to be lost so that he could die for the lost, so that we could be found. But I also think there's something more going on here. And it centers around the fact that Luke very specifically wants us to understand that Jesus was 12. Now this was the age, roughly the age, when a father would take their son and they would begin their apprenticeship under their dad's direction, or perhaps an uncle, um, but what would happen is that as Jesus is traveling around, uh, you know, as he, as he goes through life, his father would show him how to do the work that he was going to do. This is the age at which Joseph would take Jesus under his wing and teach him his carpentry ways, how to cut, how to join, and that's as much as I know about carpentry, how to build stuff. But that's what's happening do you see, at the Passover too. Jesus is here kind of being apprenticed by God. At the Passover feast, it's not a feast that children were required to be a part of. But God the Father takes Jesus and shows him, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be the blood that covers the people. Look at the sacrifice. You're going to be the sacrifice that causes death to pass over. Joseph's telling Jesus, you're going to be a carpenter. That's what your life is going to be about. But God the Father says, no, you're going to be a Passover lamb. And so Jesus kind of goes through this apprenticeship at the time. 
I think it's important for us to wrestle with that. Jesus is uh, is growing as this um, as this apprentice who's going to be the Passover lamb. And I think that's the first thing that we need to grapple with. So he was lost because he's this Passover lamb. He was lost from his earthly parents because his heavenly father was showing him who he was going to be. Jesus will be the Passover lamb. And that's the first thing I, I wanted us to see. Now the second thing is from verses 46 to 50, if you've got your uh, Bibles there with you. So after three days, they find him in the temple, hiding amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Uh, sorry, I'll start again. He's not hiding. He's sitting amongst the, the, the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now again, there's these two things going on. Jesus is just like a child, huh? Here's the situation. His parents return to Jerusalem. They're frantically searching for him. Where is he? Where is he? And sometime on the third day, they find him in the temple court, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions as if nothing is wrong. Now, just think about that for a moment. If you were Jesus' mother or father at the time, just how would you be feeling? One of my kids did this. I think I would feel probably four emotions that come to mind. Angry, exasperated, annoyed, and frustrated. Right? That's, that's probably the range of emotions you'd be feeling. And Mary's words reflect this. Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And she, she uses the term child. She doesn't say, son, why have you done this? She says, child, why have you treated us like this? Franklin Adams once said that there is many things you can learn from children, like how much patience you have, for instance. And here we find Jesus saying the very first words that, that we know that he said, recorded in the Bible, the very first utterings of our Lord Jesus Christ is, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Now some people criticize Jesus here. Surely he must have foreseen that his earthly parents would be freaking out, that they would be unimpressed with him, that, that um, they would be upset that he had abandoned them on the road to go and sit and talk with the rabbis. And I think there's maybe one of two reasons why Jesus responded like this. Maybe he was just an innocent child, you know. Maybe he responds here with the kind of naivety of a child who saw where he needed to be but didn't take into account the consequences that would have on others, like children do, like any boy of that age would. Jesus grew up, he was perfect for every stage of his life. That means at every age he was perfect, but he was also in this case, perfectly innocent. Now one commentator puts it this way. He says, um, he passed through a natural but perfect spiritual and physical development at every stage. At every stage he was perfect for that stage. 
There's a big difference between the perfection of a child and the perfection of an adult. There's a big difference between perfect innocence and perfect holiness. And so, in some ways, we can kind of forgive Jesus because he's just a child. We can't expect Jesus of 12 to be the same perfect Jesus that hangs on the cross because there is this natural human development. It was an innocent boy who thought it was at his right place. That's one option. But I think the second option is better. And that is that Jesus knows. He shows here that he knows who he is. I don't think he's saying in the innocence of a child, oh, you should have expected this. No, in essence he's saying, I know who I am and I answer to a higher authority. I actually don't have to listen to you, parents, because I'm in the house of my father. Jesus says that he knows who he was. He was the son of God the Father. Now, we have to understand just how groundbreakingly shattering that statement is. Jewish people in the Old Testament, they don't view God as Father. He is God Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. He is all of those sorts of things. He's Yahweh, the name so, so precious that they're not allowed to say it. He's the Lord. But He's not Father. He is God far away and all-powerful, but not God close. And so when Jesus says, uh, when, when our text says, but his parents did not understand what they were saying to him, it's because Jesus is claiming that close, intimate relationship with God the Father that really no one on earth has had since maybe Adam and Eve, where the, the, the son that God had created, uh, Adam, was speaking and talking with God in the cool of the day. Jesus is claiming that kind of relationship with God the Father. That's the authority I need to listen to, Mother Mary. I am a son of God the Father. I am in my Father's house. That was a, a groundbreaking thing to say. He knew of his divine sonship. He knew the job he came to do. He was going to be about his father's business. Not his dad's business. He wasn't going to be a carpenter all the time. He knew what he was coming to do. His mother says, your father and I were looking for you in great distress. But Jesus says, I'm in my father's house, my real father's house. That's who he answers to. But he also says, didn't you know that I must be? It is necessary for me to be here. Underlying this is a Greek word that indicates obligation, a kind of divine inevitability. He, he speaks almost as if this was uh, a, like a, um, a date with fate, if you like. He was fated to be there. Jesus knew what he must do because he knew whose child he was. He was God the Father's child, and so he was going to be about God the Father's work. And as people who follow Jesus then, this is where we get our sense of purpose in life from too. You and I cannot know what we must do unless we know whose children we are, unless we know which God we serve. 
The fact of the matter is that we act in life according to our deepest understanding of whose we are. How do you live your life? Well, that depends on who your father is. You know, whether I choose to hold on to my resentment over something someone did five days or five months or five years ago, or try and keep some sort of sense of superiority over them or something, or, or, or whether I do that, or whether I let go of my hurt and anger and accept people as flawed people, depends on whether I believe that God the Father is my Father. Whether I believe that Christ Jesus is my Lord and brother and he died for me. Who you are changes what you do. What is that central core of your identity? Is it someone who holds on to finances or relationship or whatever? What's that core identity that you have, the thing that defines you? If that is Christ, then that changes how you live. Do you keep being on deceitful and twisting words and phrases and doing shady business dealings to hide truth behind smoke and mirrors or lie to get out of things or to get your own way or to get ahead in the world? Or do you entrust with God speak the truth? It depends on who your father is, what the core of your identity is. Do you act with integrity and, and clarity and honesty? That depends on who your father is and what the core of your identity is. You see, our origins, our relationship to God the Father through Christ changes and determines how we live. Where must we be? Where is it necessary for us to be? Is it in our Father's house where Jesus lives? or outside in the world of me, 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 where I define who I am, where I shove some other thing into that core identity slot where Jesus is supposed to live. Whose house are you in? Who you are will change what you do. So who are you? That's the second thing we need to see. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He knows who he is and what he's going to do. Let's look lastly at who Jesus was becoming. So he knows who he is. He knows what he's going to do. But he actually still had some growing to do. This is fascinating. Verse 51. And so, uh, so he's had this interaction with his parents and then he goes with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Fascinating. They seem like a, almost something you can just skim over, right? The main event has happened. Jesus the temple has been found. And then there's a little epilogue. But... Almost everything that has been written about this passage is written about these last two verses. It's important to notice here, firstly, that Jesus did end up being obedient to his parents. So him staying in Jerusalem wasn't disobedience, it was, it was an issue of clarity of purpose. But when his earthly parents come to get him, he doesn't complain. 
doesn't bemoan the fact. He goes willingly and did everything according to the fifth commandment. He is keeping the law. Honor your father and mother. And perhaps this shows us that even when we have a clear sense of what we must do because of who we are, it doesn't mean that we just burn our family bridges, that we kind of do whatever is necessary to, uh, you know, that the end justifies the means type of thing in order to fulfill that purpose. But I think what's important here is the, is the last couple of verses, uh, in, in these last couple of verses, is, is verse 52. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And this baffled me for a long while. Why did Jesus, who has this intimate relationship with God the Father, who is the Son who from all eternity had only a relationship with God the Father through the Holy Spirit in love, how is it that he grew in favor with God? Surely as God's Son, he had God's favor, that God was pleased with him. And yet here it is, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God. Why is that? Well, I think when we read the rest of the Gospels, this becomes a little clearer. You see, Jesus express, uh, sorry, God expresses his favor with Jesus in a few other places in Jesus' life story. It happens again at Jesus' baptism. There God the Father says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. You see, that's the point here. Here Jesus starts growing in favor with God, and the more he grew up, the more God the Father is pleased with him. He is reaching that perfect life in maturity uh, before God. And the next time we meet Jesus is some 18 years later in Luke's Gospel, right? And during these intervening 18 years, Jesus grew in favor with God because he grew in his capacity to live a life pleasing to God. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Traditional theology has stumbled here at what might be taken to undermine the conviction that Jesus was at all times and in all respects utterly without flaw. But Luke rather speaks here out of the conviction that the human maturing process, even in its perfect form, involves not only growth in size but also development in wisdom and in the capacity to execute that which is pleasing to God. Now, what he's saying is that Jesus can be perfect at every age and at every stage for what is expected of every age and every stage. You know, that's why Jesus had to grow in favor with God, because as a child he was physically incapable of living a life that was perfect in order to give that to us. In fact... Jesus, as a boy, was incapable of saving the world. Why? Because then he could only have stood as a perfect sacrifice for children and never for adults. He had to live a perfectly mature adult life. And that's why God doesn't just zap Jesus at his birth. In fact, he had a life to live, to grow, that was pleasing to God. And in these 18 years between this event and when we meet Jesus in chapter 3, Jesus matures in his capacity to be, uh, to be able to live a life that is pleasing to God, fully mature, perfectly, as he needed to be. 
It's not that Jesus was unpleasing to God before, but he was merely a human boy. Yes, God, but not fully uh, mature as a human. He had to mature. And I also find it interesting that Jesus ultimately grew in favor with God, but also with man. You see, Jesus was this perfect child. He was a perfect teenager, if there is such a thing. And he was a perfect adult. One who treated you with respect and wanted you to be better than, you know, you, made you want to be better than yourself. How could you not be drawn to such a person? He grew in favor uh, with man. But of course, once these 18 years between chapter 2 and chapter 3 are completed, Jesus' favor with men came to an end. What started when he was 12, this work of the Heavenly Father, he came to complete. The apprenticeship that Jesus started in Jerusalem at the Passover finally qualified him to be the Passover lamb. He had a job to do. The prophecy of Simeon that we looked at last week, that Jesus came to be a sanctuary to some and a stumbling block to others, finally, ultimately ended up happening. Jesus started when he turned 30 to expose people's hearts and to be a signpost, to be spoken against, as we saw last week. And when Jesus started revealing the hearts of broken people, people recoiled from him. It's like darkness flees when a candle is lit. So too our hearts react when they see the light of Christ exposing our deepest and innermost secrets. That's how we react. That's our natural response. We want to hide. This is all the way right back to Adam and Eve, as we've seen in our story. When first sin came into the world, what's the first thing they did is they go and cover themselves. They want to hide behind these fig leaves. They knew that they were naked and they were shamed. And so they hid themselves from God because their hearts had been exposed. It's not because their bodies were naked that they were shamed. It's because their souls were exposed to God who was pure and perfect and holy, and they were not. And so it is with us. Friends, have you experienced this? Where Jesus in his life has shone his light on the darkest corners of your heart? Those places where you store bitterness and deceit and anger and hatred? Those altars in our hearts where we have built these, um, these edifices to our idols, our other gods who take the place of God. These false temples that we've constructed where we find comfort when we are stressed or lonely or depressed. Have you experienced Christ bursting into these rooms and opening these chambers with the searing light of his holiness? where his light starts burning away that hatred and bitterness and deceit and unforgiveness, where Jesus' glory smashes the altars and the idols and the false God that we worship in our hearts, where Jesus tears down these false temples in which we seek comfort because our comfort is in him alone. Have you experienced this? It hurts. It's uncomfortable. 
as with all things that burn, like his light burns, as with all things that smash, like his life smashes, and like all things that tear apart, like he's tearing apart the idols in our hearts, it hurts. But just like a festering wound that you want to heal, you need to pour some disinfectant in it. It stings. So when Jesus exposes our hearts, it hurts. But it's worth it. It brings us into a right relationship with God the Father. It puts back who is supposed to be that core central identity that we have in our hearts uh, and it changes us to be different people. To be people that are, that are the ones that God made us to be. More and more, every day, we are being shaped into the people that God wants us to be. The pain is worth it. But it's only possible because Jesus exposed the hearts of those 2,000 years ago and the people didn't like it. Yes, he grew with, with uh, favor with men, but eventually they turned. They could not handle the searing pain of his light. They could not handle the glory of him smashing down their idols and shaking the, the doors at their religious temples. He could not handle them tearing down the false religion they had built at the day. So they rejected him, they killed him, and they crucified him. And he died. We have a different choice, actually. We have a different choice. In each one of our lives, we have a choice to accept what God is doing. We can sort of work together with God as He changes our hearts. We can either step aside and let Him do the work, or we can resist Him. Resisting Him never works, but it is our choice. Or we can stand aside and let him tear the false temples out of our hearts because we want to serve him even though it hurts. And we can do this not in our own strength but in his strength. When we believe in him through his Holy Spirit, he gives us that power. And when we do, we will live a life that is far richer, far better, far holier than we are today. Because we too can start living a life where we grow in wisdom and stature and favour with God because Jesus has already done it for us. So let him do the work in your heart so that you can grow closer to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we pray that you will change our hearts. God, plant the truth of your perfect life in our hearts, your perfect sacrifice on the cross. Help us to see that and focus on that. Help us to live in light of the new life that you give us in your resurrection too. Lord, all of us have different struggles and temptations in our lives, but we know that you are sympathetic to all of them, that you know what it's like at every stage of life to be tempted and yet was without sin.
Oh Lord, how we long to be like that. We praise you and thank you that you are slowly, step by step, helping us to grow in this. Help us today, Lord, to take the next step in our faith as well, so that we can become, uh, be made into your image more and more, even today, as we trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.